And Father, we pray that the words of the song would be consistent with the desire of our heart, that in all that we do, it would be our joy to honor you. And Father, we pray that you would guide our thoughts and our actions, our intentions, as we look at the truth of your word, as we consider our willingness to obey you, our commitment to serve you. And pray, Father, that you would be pleased with the outcome of this time together this morning. We thank you, Father, for the great privilege that is ours in worshiping you and knowing something about the God of this universe, the one that reached from heaven to save us from our sin, to bless our lives in such a remarkable way. I pray, Father, that as we think about who you are, as we consider all that you've done, that it would be our heart's desire to love you with all that we have and all that we are so that we could with increasing accuracy say, it is my joy to honor you in all that I do. Would you guide our minds and our hearts through this time of teaching? Would you help us to understand through the work of your spirit? We thank you that your word is active and living and sharper than any two-edged sword, and we pray that your word would not return back to you void, that it would accomplish your intended purpose in every heart and every life that's here today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be seated, if you will. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, and we're looking at part two of this gift of love. It is our gift of loving Him. It is our gift of loving one another that is predicated upon our understanding of and our commitment to the love that God has shown us. And so as we've looked in this chapter of Romans, which we're going to finish today, we've seen how we are to serve the Lord with a dedication that would be described as sacrificial. We are to give to him our very, very best. We are to serve him in a way that is pleasing to him. And we are to exercise this service throughout the body that we belong to as brothers and sisters in Christ. And we've looked at what that means in terms of our spiritual giftedness, what God has given to us at the moment of our salvation in order to serve Him and to build up and equip the body of Christ. And we've seen where this is most directly applicated, and that is within the body of Christ. And that's what we looked at in last week's message in verses 9 through 13. And I'm going to read this passage of Scripture to remind you that this, in a sense, is really specific about how the body is to treat itself, how we are to treat one another as believers And we'll look in this final section today of 14 to 21, which speaks to how we are to treat all people, not just believers. So let's read for review verses 9 through 13, and I'll run through a summary of what we've looked at just by way of connection for those that weren't here last week and those that need the reminder. So verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. And so we began our look at these ten elements that would describe this gift of love. And the first thing that we see, and you can follow this in the outline provided in your bulletin, is we see the quality of love. This love that we are to exercise within the body of Christ is to be a divine love, a love that would be qualified by agape love, 
which God has shown to us, and while we cannot live that out fully, we are to pursue that as a standard, a love that seeks the best of others, a love that is willing to deny self and to sacrifice my own rights for the betterment of other people. This love was modeled by Christ on the cross. It was commanded to us in Jesus' own words that we are to love one another as He loved us. And this love is dependent upon our relationship with Jesus Christ. If we have a lackadaisical walk with Him, we will have a lackadaisical love for the brethren. It is dependent that we walk closely with Him so that we can live out this love that God has prescribed to be true within His body. This love that we have for one another is to be without hypocrisy. It is to be genuine. It is not to be faked. It is sincere. It isn't artificial. It is selfless. And it is rooted in a denial of ourself for the betterment of others. This is a supernatural love that you and I cannot manufacture On our own, we must walk with Christ to love people that way. Number two, we see love's morality. As we look at love's morality, we are to abhor, we are to hate with great intensity that which is evil. We're to turn away from it, we're to run away from it, and we are instead to cling to that which is good. The way this is phrased is that this is not an either-or proposition for us, but there is a causal relationship. The cause is this, that if we really hate what is evil, then we will love that which is good. If we love that which is good, then we will hate that which is evil. As you think about the sin that so easily entangles us, do we possess a true hatred, an abhorrence of that sin, Or is there a polite tolerance or some kind of justification for that which we allow to be a part of our everyday life? Well, we are to hate that which is evil, those things that God hates, and we are to love that which is good, those things that God loves. Thirdly, we see love's commitment. We are to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. This devotion is to be like a family affection, not your in-laws, not the outlaws, not the black sheep, haha, but the family. There is a love within our families for most of us that becomes a model, an expectation of how we are to love one another. Now the problem is love within the family is greatly tarnished by the impact of sin, the presence of sin and the power of sin from those who don't know Christ. So some of us grew up in homes, myself included, where love was never modeled. But I have scripture that models for me what love is to be like within the body of Christ. We are to love one another like we love our family. We are to give preference to one another in honor. That means that we will lead by example in giving honor to other people and not seeking honor for ourselves. We encourage others, we thank others, we praise others, we are willing to serve and help others rather than saying, who's going to do that for me? We're here to build the body, although as a part of the body, we will be built up by others who are loving God and serving us through the body. Fourthly, we see love's expression in verses 11 through 13. And the key phrase in all of that, in my estimation, is serving the Lord. And there's seven descriptions of how we are to serve the Lord in those passages. Uh, We are to serve the Lord with diligence. It means to be zealous. It's serious. There's a real severe commitment there. 
We're to serve the Lord with a fervent spirit, which is a boiling hot commitment, which is what fervent means. We're to serve the Lord by being joyful in hope, not being consumed with what's going on in the world, not having a lack of hope, a lack of joy, a lack of peace because of what's going on in the world. But we have this joy because we have salvation and we look forward to an eternity with God in heaven. That should bring us hope. And if it doesn't bring us hope, we need to reevaluate how we view the salvation that God has given to us through Christ. Letter D, we serve the Lord by being patient in affliction. It means we stay the course. It means we let God teach us. It means we listen and we try to get the lesson that God wants for us to have. We don't bail out of our walk with God. We don't shake our fists in anger against Him. But we are to be patient as we go through difficulty and hardship. Letter E, we serve the Lord by being faithful in prayer. And I said this exact thing last week. Prayer is the most underutilized privilege Christians have. Think about that. If you wanted to call the mayor of our city... If you wanted to call the governor of our state, if you wanted to call one of the senators or one of the state representatives, you would not have direct access to that individual, would you? Is he expecting your call? Is there some urgent matter? No, I just need to talk. Well, that is not going to happen. But you and I have direct access to God the Father, the creator of the universe, and all we have to do is stop and begin to pray. Talk to him. Tell him what we feel. Tell him what we need. Tell him what we think. Let him commune with us as we commune with him in prayer. Letter F, serve the Lord by sharing with others. That word koinonia, fellowship, having all things in common as was manifested and marked and dominated by the early church. Letter G, serve the Lord by being friendly to strangers. And that word hospitality means the care of strangers. And so we practice the gospel by being hospitable, by being welcoming to those that we don't yet know. Those who are not yet here, we should welcome them with open arms, with a family affection. It's one of the great marks of this church, and I've heard it from many, many who have visited our church, that people are just so friendly, and that's the way it needs to be. But it extends beyond these four walls. It extends out into the lives that we live independently from one another. Now, these next eight verses describe not only how we are to relate to one another, but how we are to relate to all people. And there are some strong commandments and exhortations in this passage of Scripture, and I can promise you that we all fail as we will examine these. So in these eight verses that remain, we'll see the last of these ten elements of the gift of love. So read with me in verses 14 through 21, and here's what the Word of God says. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil 
with good. Now, there's some strong teaching in there, and it ought to remind us of some of the very things that Jesus would have taught, most especially in the Sermon on the Mount, as he instructed this group of people, this radical new information about what it means to walk with God, to love him, and to serve others. So, number five in the outline is, we see love's grace. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. I want to tell you that this is the epitome of supernatural living. Bless those who curse you, excuse me, persecute you, bless and do not curse. Now, what is our natural human response towards those that persecute us or hurt us or mistreat us or betray us or take advantage of us? What is our natural instinct? What is our first response? It is to get back. It is revenge. It is to give you what I believe you've got coming to you. But this is not what Scripture teaches us. Scripture teaches us to bless those who persecute, bless and do not curse. Now, I'll tell you this, and I can tell you this from my own experience, that it may not seem possible at the time of the offense to be able to pray a blessing upon that individual. Can you identify with that? Yeah, my first instinct is, how dare you do or say such a thing? And immediately begin to think of how I can get back, how I can get even, how I can bring some kind of like hardship into this individual's life because of what they've said or what they've done to me. But rather than being harmful towards them, we are to be gracious towards those who hurt us. We are to resist hating and retaliating against those who harm us. We are instead to ask God to bless those who are intentionally trying to hurt us. Now, this is a restatement of what Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 27 and 28. But I say to you who, who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Perhaps the ultimate Christian discipline is going to be loving our enemies, blessing those who persecute you. Can you do that in your own strength? Can you do that in your own power? Can you do that by your own resolution? We can't do it. We must be walking with God in order to have a spiritual perspective and a spiritual application to this incredibly difficult instruction. Blessing our enemies in such a way as we go through the passage that God will have the opportunity to do something in their life. Now, this action was modeled by Christ. He didn't just speak it, but he actually modeled it himself. Luke 23:34, as Jesus hung on the cross, dying, breathing his last breaths, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And to think that this is impossible, not many Weeks after that, Stephen, one of the first disciples, we have this account in Acts chapter 7, they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the name, excuse me, called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep or he died. You think about an innocent man who is being stoned to death and his final words are, forgive them. They just don't understand what it is they're doing. So us showing others the unmerited grace of Christ 
is how we live out the gospel as we think about the grace of Christ given to us that we are unworthy of and that we are undeserving to receive. That's the stiff teaching right there to bless those who persecute you, to pray for your enemies in such a way that you're relinquishing the right to be harmed or wronged by them. Number six in the outline, we see love's encouragement. Verse 15 reads, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Now the reality is this, that we can become so self-absorbed that we don't really think about other people in such a way that we can share with them in their joy or that we can share with them in their sorrow. In our earthly families, we celebrate the good things and we don't resent the good fortune experience. Isn't that right? You have a brother, you have a child who has this great thing happen to them and you shouldn't say, well, gee, that's not very fair. That didn't ever happen to me. I don't know why he got that. I'm more deserving of that than he is. So in the way that we would rejoice in the family, we are to rejoice within the body of Christ most especially, and even to those outside of the faith that we would deem to be unworthy of receiving any blessing from God. Have you ever wondered why God chooses or allows the wicked to to be blessed physically the way they are? They have everything the world convinces us we need And we wonder, God, how could you allow them to have such wealth and such popularity and such influence? It's not ours to discern. It's not ours to decide. We are to simply rejoice with those who rejoice. And we are to be grateful for the good fortune that is theirs. It is distinctively Christian to rejoice in the blessings, honor, and welfare of others no matter what our own personal circumstances are. I remember watching cartoons with my kids when they were little, and old Eeyore, boy, oh boy, Eeyore had it bad, didn't he? Always in the mud puddle. Oh, bother. Thomas the Tank Engine. Put upon, put upon. Poor Thomas always put upon. Isn't that right? And this is what can happen if we become so self-absorbed that we can't experience the joy that others go through and we certainly won't be able to weep with those who are suffering. Now, it can be difficult to celebrate someone's promotion, someone else's good fortune when, when we ourselves are overlooked or someone else's blessings when we don't think they deserve it. And I'm sure many of you have been in the workplace where some of your colleagues have received promotions and you know that they have manipulated their way through, they have stepped all over people, they have been deceptive in things, and yet they get the promotion, and you go, huh, that's not very fair. That's our natural instinct, but it's distinctly Christian to rejoice in the good fortune of others. Now, as we are to rejoice with one another, we are also to weep with others. In the same way, it is distinctly Christian to be sensitive to the disappointments, the hardships, and the sorrows of others. One of the saddest things that can be said in any church is that I'm going through the most difficult period of my life and it doesn't seem like anybody cares and nobody really wants to help. So think about it like this. If a member of your family... a member of your immediate family, was going through a great hardship, would you just kind of go, well, it'll pass, you'll get over it, 
it'll all be okay in the end. What would you do? What would be your response? How would you want to assist a family member who is going through such a difficult time? Well, that's the way we are to approach the hardship, the sorrows of other people. Life can be very hard. And when life is hard for us, it is not, it is not natural for us to be overly concerned about what other people are going through. But sometimes people go through such difficulty and such hardship that it can seemingly destroy their perspective on life. If you don't believe that's true, read about the epidemic called suicide in our culture today. Read about the epidemic of loneliness in our world today. Think about the emptiness that people feel, even those who belong to a local church and would consider themselves to be part of the body of Christ, they live their lives alone and nobody seems to care. Well, we can practice the gospel by coming alongside, alongside those that are hurting and show them the love and compassion of Christ through our care and our concern. We may not be able to fix it. We may not be able to change it. We may not be able to really do anything other than sit there and say, I am so sorry. My heart aches to know what it is you're going through. That may be all you're able to do. But that might be enough to help them get through the difficulty. So we see love's encouragement and rejoicing and weeping with one another. Number seven, we see love's humility. Verse 16 reads, Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. So that phrase, to be of the same mind, means to be impartial. To be impartial. We are to treat others as we would want ourselves to be treated, regardless of who they are. We are to see an equal value in human life and not show favoritism to those that we consider to have a life that is more valuable. That's an incredibly difficult thing to do. We tend to judge people based upon the circumstances they find themselves in. We pass by people who are panhandling on the street. We drive through areas where there might be people sleeping under a bridge and we go, those stupid people gave up their lives for something. They made bad choices. There's consequences for their actions and it might be so. But we deem their value in life to be less than others because of their circumstances. But we are to see human life as being equal and valuable and important. And James would teach this with great precision. And we read these words in James 2, 1-4. My brethren, do not hold your faith and our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay, attention, you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? I've seen this in the church. Not this church. I've seen this in churches I've been in. And people come in and they're not dressed like everybody thinks they ought to be dressed. And they may not be as groomed as others think they ought to be groomed. 
and they avoid them, they disassociate from them, they won't shake their hand or even introduce themselves, they treat them like they're third-class citizens, and it does irreparable damage into the lives of those people. Travis, who has just returned from India, was telling the story that when he would go into the schools and have an opportunity to speak to the kids, the kids who were handicapped or disabled were lined up on the outside of the room and the teacher would barely pay any attention to them and they were ostracized and you got to know they knew something was up. Right? So what we have the opportunity to do is we have the opportunity to live out the gospel by being impartial towards others regardless of their circumstances. This is most specifically expressed by not being haughty in mind. You know what it means to be haughty in mind, right? It's to be incredibly prideful. It's to be filled with arrogance. It's to look down your self-righteous nose and judge other people because they don't meet or fit your expectations or the mold that you have that defines what a valuable life might look like. We're not to be filled with pride so that we ourselves so that we consider ourselves to be better than other people. Pride and arrogance, self-interest and self-centeredness will make us dull to the needs of others, to the value that is in all human life, and will be a hindrance to our ability to live out this high command of loving one another with an agape love. I wonder what would happen to a lost individual if some Christians began to love them with an unconditional love. I wonder what kind of an impact that would have in their life. Well, number eight, we see love's forgiveness. Verse 17 reads, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. Now, what does the word never mean? I don't see an asterisk in my Bible. There isn't any footnote. There isn't any loophole. Never means never. So never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Well, who does that include? Anyone. The potential exists that we will be driven to return evil for evil because that is our human nature. That is our natural instinct. But to live supernaturally, we must resist those natural instincts, yield them to the cross of Christ, and pray that the Spirit would empower us to live out the gospel in such a way that we would never consider repaying evil for evil to anyone. I remember in the state of Pennsylvania some years ago, the, the madman that massacred a bunch of Amish school children for no apparent reason. And the Amish community said... We forgive. And the world said, how could you forgive such a thing? Don't you just want to pummel that individual? Don't you just want to brutalize them and, and hurt them and stone them and punish them? See, that's a natural instinct that we have. It's supernatural to be driven to forgive when we ourselves have been hurt so badly. We are to seek forgiveness in all of our relationships. That extends out to the lost. 
Never repay repay evil for evil to anyone, not specifically within the body, not our own immediate family, but anyone. This is the continuation of the principle of blessing those who curse us. So we are instead to do the right thing. So what is the right thing if it isn't repayment of evil for evil? Well, it is repaying evil with good. It is blessing our enemies. It is praying for those, as Jesus said, who hurt us or curse us. Our forgiving, gracious behavior toward our enemies should commend us to them and to others who witness that behavior. Well, I don't agree with everything that Bob believes, but I'll tell you this. Bob's a a good guy. You know, I did some wrong to him, and Bob said, hey, it's okay, I forgive you, and he's never held it against me. Do you think that makes a difference in the lives of people? Do you think that makes a difference in the lives of lost people who really don't know much about love and forgiveness as we would understand it? So we live out the gospel by extending forgiveness to others as we have been forgiven by God. Number nine, we see love's reconciliation. Verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. So we each have a personal responsibility to pursue relationships that are free from conflict. That is our personal responsibility. Now, a couple things I want to point out here. If possible, what does that mean? Well, it means just that, that it may not be possible to be at peace with others because of the response of the other individual. So as much as it depends upon you and me, we should be at peace with all men. Now, if I've offended Janet, and Janet comes to me and says, Pastor Dennis, you've really hurt me, and, and I just want you to know about that. And I say, well, huh, that's tough luck for you, isn't it? You could have to be a big girl and just grow up and get over it. Well, she's done all this possible, but I haven't. And this is where we have such a difficulty is that we are to do all that we know to do to be at peace in our relationships and then we have to leave it with God because we can't change the hearts of people. So we are to do all that we know to do to be at peace with other people as much as it depends upon you, meaning you've done all you can do to bring about reconciliation. And so unresolved conflict in our relationships should not be because we are not willing to do our part. Unresolved conflict in our relationships should only be because the individual is unwilling to do anything about the problem that I've made them aware of. We aren't to play a game of chicken and figure out who's going to blink first. Well, I'm not going to do anything until they do something. So I'll just sit here and wait, and I'll wait, and I'll wait. What will happen? Resentment and bitterness and then hatred, disinterest, the kinds of things that shouldn't be present in the hearts of Christians. Those who have been saved by God, changed by God, filled with the Spirit, should enjoy relationships that that pursue resolution to the issues that are divisive amongst them. Conflict in our relationships is never due to the inactivity of God, but always the result of the actions of man. If you can't get resolution in your conflict, don't blame God. It's a man-made problem. God has provided the principles by which we can find resolution and forgiveness. And when we don't apply them to our lives, we're going to be stuck with the outcome. So there's the four steps 
that we can pursue, that we can use to heal the broken relationships in our, in our life. So the first one is this, is that we need to recognize the brokenness that is there, either within ourselves or within the individual. So if Janet comes to me and says, Pastor, you've really hurt me, I need to go, uh-oh, there's a conflict here. I need to do all I know to do to resolve this conflict. So we have to be able to recognize the brokenness, even if it might seem inconsequential to us. Even if it might seem silly to us, we need to recognize the brokenness that is there so that something can be done about it. Secondly, confession. We have to take responsibility for our own contribution to the conflict. We don't make excuses we don't dish it off on extenuating circumstances. Well, you know, Jim, I'm really sorry I cursed you out the way I did the other day, but man, work was really crazy that week, and I didn't get a lot of sleep, and the baby was up, and I was just out of my wit's end. Well, what is that? That's an excuse, isn't it? We don't say things like, well, if I've hurt you, because that doesn't recognize the brokenness that's there. So we have to take our responsibility. So Janet, I understand that I've offended you. I am really sorry. Help me understand how I cannot do that again. That's the process you go through. You don't say, well, I don't know why you're so upset about that. It really wasn't that big of a thing. Thirdly, we must repent. We must make a commitment to change the behavior, to stop a behavior, or to begin a behavior that will eliminate the, rep the repetition of this area of conflict in the relationship. I hate it when you come home three hours late and you never call and let me know where you are. Well, that means you better start doing something different, right? Otherwise, you're going to continue to have that kind of a conflict. So we have to repent. We turn away from those things that create conflict in our relationships. Last thing that we do is we forgive. We ask for or we grant forgiveness. So Janet comes to me and says, Pastor Dennis, you've really offended me. And we talk through that and I say, Janet, I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? Well, Janet's response isn't to be, well, we'll see. We'll see how you do later on down the road. We'll see if this revisits our relationship in the days ahead. Neither does she turn her back on me and say, well, I'm not over it yet. I actually heard a leader in a church say this to me one day. He said this. He said, I will forgive you, but I will not forget. What does that mean? It means you haven't really forgiven me, right? So when we forgive someone, we relinquish the right to be wronged by them. We say, you hurt me, but I have granted you forgiveness, and I am going to not hold that against you anymore in the same way God doesn't hold my sins against me. Because God has forgiven me. Now, let me ask you as you look at these four things that we can do to bring about resolution in our relationships. Is this supernatural living or is this something that we can manufacture on our own? Well, some of this you can do to agree in your own strength, but you can't do it to the degree that really brings about the kind of relationship that we all desire with those that we are connected to. 1 Peter 4.8 says this, Above all, keep fervent, boiling hot, Keep fervent in your love for one another. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. You see, when Janet loves me like a brother, 
She's going to be willing to forgive me when I come to her and say, I recognize I've offended you. Will you please forgive me? How many times is Janet to forgive me? Well, the Jewish law said seven. What did Jesus say? Well, Jesus said 70 times seven. So, well, that's 490 times. I'm going to keep a journal until you get the 490. And then, buddy, you're done. That's not what that means at all. (laughs) 70 times seven is two perfect numbers, which means you forgive. I would say that forgiveness is also the epitome of supernatural living. Love covers a multitude of sins. So you and I can live out the gospel by experiencing reconciliation in conflict-riddled relationships, and most especially with those outside of the church who knew nothing about this unconditional, selfless love. It can radically affect how they approach us, how they view our relationship with God and what that means to them. Lastly, number 10 in our outline, we see love's delegation. These last three verses summarize this entire passage of 9 through 18. Let's read together, 19 to 21. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for what? For the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Basically, it means this. Let God distribute justice. God has an infallible record of everything. (laughs) We don't need to get hung up in that. God sees all that we can't see. He knows all that we could never know. And we are to relinquish this drive to get even and lay it under the sovereignty of God, knowing that He will do what is just as He has determined. On those who abuse, mistreat, neglect, betray us, leave room for the wrath of God. Our righteous, biblical, God-empowered actions will be a point of conviction for our enemies. And that's what it means when we heap burning coals on their head. I'll tell you, when you're loving those who are mean towards you and you're giving your enemies food to drink, uh, to eat and drink when they're thirsty, why are you doing this? I, I don't like you. I've been mean to you. But why are you doing this to me? Well, I do this in the name of Christ. What kind of an impact does that make? To withhold vengeance from our enemies is one thing. Listen to this. To withhold vengeance from our enemies is one thing. It requires that we do nothing. But to actually return good for evil is quite another and obviously more difficult thing, right? Someone can hurt you and say, well, I'm not going to do anything about it. But it's another thing to actually repay that with good. Supernatural living. We must not allow the evil done to us by other people overcome and overwhelm us, which is a potential problem that we have to deal with. As we think about the gift of love, as we think about what we've heard in this passage of Scripture, as difficult and challenging as it might be, where would we be if God acted towards us in the same way that we acted towards others? What if God gave back to us the same love that we give to those who hurt us? 
Well, I'm not God, right? Well, that's true. But I am to pursue an agape love relationship within the body of Christ and outside of the walls. That's how you and I live out the gospel. You can't do that apart from an intimate relationship with Christ. Religion doesn't do it. Denominationalism doesn't do it. Sitting in a church chair and singing the songs doesn't do it. It is a commitment to prioritize your walk with Christ in such a way that these impossibilities become more possible as you strive to honor Him in all you do. Is that your desire? Is that your commitment? It ought to be each of our um, desires to say, God, I want to be more like you tomorrow than I was today. I want to love other people more than I did today. I want to serve you by serving others more than I did today. As we do that, as we put our hands to that plow, it'll make a difference in the lives of people. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for this limitless love that we know that comes from you to us, this love that has changed our lives, it has sealed our eternity, it has changed us, it has made us new, it has brought us into your spiritual eternal family, it has set us free from the power and the bondage of sin, it has given to us the capacity to do the unthinkable and loving those that hate us and being kind to those who mistreat us. Father, we know that you have given us your Holy Spirit to empower us to live out the commands that you've given to us. And I pray that we would learn to yield to that power each and every day so that we would reflect Christ in a dark world, that we would love one another as you have commanded us to love. And our relationships within these four walls would be like a functioning family, not a dysfunctional family, but one that functions under the headship of Christ. God, we pray that you would do in and through us what can only be explained by you as we give ourselves to your plans and your purposes. We pray in Jesus' name.